Hey everyone, this is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast. We are just about to embark on season two of 2018. Now, if you recall, season one, which was the first four months of the year, was based on the principle of life, uh, meaning you are your greatest asset. So all of our guests, all of our topics and conversations revolved around that theme. For this season, we are going to focus on liberty, which is the pursuit of freedom. And that is a, uh, something that's kind of dear to me in a sense, because I believe that all, uh, all people are driven naturally toward that. But yet we're told as a society that certain financial ends should be our goal, such as retirement, as an example. So my guest today is, I've never, I never met him before the interview, uh, but it, it, was, it was an incredible discussion and we share so much similarity as far as uh, uh, our philosophies are concerned about life and about uh, money and about investing. And uh, so you guys are going to love it. His name is, uh, his name is Phil Town. That may, uh, name may ring a bell. He's written a number of books. He's been around for, for quite a long time, shared the stage with Kiyosaki, shared the stage with Tony Robbins and, uh, and many others. And he just came out with a new book. Uh, that is called Invested. So you can, uh, you can follow Phil by going to his website, which is rule1investing.com. He also has a really cool podcast that he does with his daughter. In fact, the book was written with his daughter as well. Uh, and is, you know, the topics revolve around interaction between him and, his, uh, him and his daughter. So anyway, you guys are gonna really enjoy it. Can't wait for you to hear it. All right, so for this, uh, this coming season, we have some really awesome guests. Uh, so make sure you uh, go to the website, thewellstandard.com and uh, put in your email address and subscribe to the free newsletter so that you can be updated as to when, uh, when episodes are released. You can also get the show notes and so forth. Uh, we also have our social media links on there. Now, with all the events that we have uh, going on this summer and this year, like the book that I have coming out, uh, the, uh, the, the Cashflow Wealth Summit, uh, and a lot of other things, uh, follow me on social media. I, I uh, am getting better at being active on Instagram. You can follow me there. And, uh, and also uh, the links to Facebook and Twitter and so forth are on thewellstandard.com. So you can link, uh, link there and then follow, follow me and follow, uh, follow the company. Uh, okay, well, without further uh, ado, let's, uh, let's get to Phil. You guys are gonna really enjoy this interview and it's a video interview as well. So if you're listening to audio and you wanna check, uh, you know, check the video side of things out. You can find us uh, on YouTube. So it's YouTube forward slash Paradigm Life. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast. Celebrating life, liberty, and property. You are listening to Liberty Season 2. So, Phil, welcome uh, welcome to the show. It's, uh, it's awesome to, uh, to have you on. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Patrick. It's great to be here. So Love your show. Most of, uh, you know, I, I would say I've known about you for, for a, a really long time. Uh, uh, but for the listeners, maybe that, that uh, don't know you, don't know your story, would you mind taking a moment and uh, just telling us you know, where, where you've come from and then what you're doing today? Sure. Um, I'm, a, I'm an investor and I'm deeply involved in teaching people to invest. <clears throat> I just finished doing a book with my daughter, Danielle based on our podcast called Invested, which is me teaching her to invest. But I don't come from sort of the Wall Street view of things. I came out of um, being a soldier slash river guide back uh, in the day and um, spent 10 years working as a river guide in the Grand Canyon doing those whitewater trips. That was my full-time career. And uh, in 1980, um, basically, I 
ended up kind of saving a guy's life who was an investor and he decided he would teach me to invest and I just took him up on it out of kind of that door opened and I went through it and that changed everything for me. Um, I started with very little money. I made a good, a good rate of return. I made um, my first million dollars in five years and then I've built it since. And then I wrote books about it and I've talked about it. So that's kind of, uh, that's kind of, where I'm from, I guess, Patrick, is one way to say it. So, so, and, and I know you've written more than, more than one book. This most recent book, Invested, so how did you get to the point where you decided to write it with uh, your daughter and then maybe walk us through the, the theme of the book and, and where you, you know, came up with those, those ideas? Well, the theme of the book is financial freedom. And um, that idea came out of my daughter's attempt to never learn to invest from her father, which he was very successful at implementing for 35 years. And then she discovered as an attorney, successful attorney working for a really good law firm, living in Boulder, Colorado, having a a good life, but she discovered that she wasn't financially free, that the pressure of her lifestyle, her job, her career, the things she loved to do, the things she didn't love to do but had to do, all of those things combined um, to work against her feeling of being free. And she finally realized by doing some numbers that just saving money from a significant you know, salary that she was making, that wasn't going to be enough to ever get her to financial freedom, that she would be, in her terms, a wage slave, albeit a highly paid one, her entire life, she would have to work well up into her 60s to get to a place where she could count on herself to handle retirement until, you know, she was 90 some years old. And that just finally dawned on her that I, her father, have lived a life of financial freedom for her entire life. She's grown up under somebody that lived in financial freedom. And, um, and yet it never dawned on her that maybe she should learn how I did that until her mid-30s. And then she said, Dad, look, it, I hate this thing, this investing idea. It's horrible. I hate numbers. I don't want to read anything. I have my, biz- my career, my life. Can it, you know, I'm afraid I, I can't learn this unless we do it in a structured way. Could we do a podcast where you teach me and then I have to show up every week because a podcast is requiring that I get there. I said, okay, I was sort of laughing. This is going to be a very boring and very short podcast because learning to invest doesn't take a lot of super skill. I mean, there's just a few things you need to know. I figured we'd be done with it in a few hours. And um, what I didn't expect was that in the first podcast, she proceeded to rip me apart for every idea I gave her. It was wrong for this reason. It was wrong for that reason. I'm like, whoa, this is not teacher-student. This is father-daughter time here where she is not just going to listen to me. And it turned out that that was pretty entertaining. And we have since then have done, I think, 160 podcasts. And I'm still teaching her. And she's getting less, sort of pushing back less. But she still pushes back. And the impact of that pushing back that she does is that a lot of people listen to the podcast and think, wow, Danielle is finally asking the hard questions, the ones I always want to know the answer to, the dumb questions I'm afraid to ask. She's pounding her dad to make him dig in deep enough to where 
she really understands it. And that has kind of become the theme of the podcast and ultimately became the book Invested. So I, so I have a couple of questions in that, in that regard, because you, you've taught people probably hundreds of thousands, maybe more. You've shared the stage with you know, Tony Robbins and other you know, iconic figures. And you've seen firsthand how you know, some people will educate themselves with the information that you're giving them. Uh, others are, will choose not to. This is your, your flesh and blood. This is your, your daughter. <laughs> so my question becomes, like, first, what was, what was the tipping point that got her to wake up and say, Dad, I, wanna, you know, I want to learn more about uh, money or I want to do a podcast or whatever, whatever that conversation looked like? And then a follow-up to that is, you know, what, what has helped her make certain financial concepts click as you've been doing the podcast? Well, the notion of financial freedom is really what drove Danielle to desperately seek help. You know, obviously, it has to be desperate for her to come to me. So, seeking help and and the process of of trying to do it on her own led her to understand that putting money under her mattress or handing money to even to a kind of like a betterment or a wealth front or some or a robo advisor was not going to get her where she wanted to go. The numbers just didn't work out. In other words, she did that little process called your number, right? Trying to figure out what the number had to be to to be financially free and found out she wasn't going to get there for a long, long time. So that's that was the, the trigger um, to starting to dig deeper about investing. And then the thing that made it click for her, that first off, it was just Danielle pushing back on me. I mean, she's super smart. She's Wellesley. Uh, bachelor's degree, Oxford master's degree, NYU law degree, and a master's degree in law. And so she's smarter than me, and which isn't fair. And she just beats me up and um, using her intellect. And then I was on the defensive all the way until she finally started to realize that she connected to the idea of putting her money where her values are and how important it was for her and for her generation to not just put your money into stuff that, that hopefully makes you money and makes you wealthier, but to put it in stuff that does those things, but does it in a way that moves the world toward the world you want to see, toward the world that your descendants should be living in as opposed to the one the directions we're going now. And when, I, when she finally realized that her vote with dollars invested in anything, betterment, wealth front's going to take your money, put it into ETFs, you're going to own everything there is, or you choose to put your money where you believe that company is making a difference. So the first company that she really locked into was the realization that she was going down to Whole Foods on a regular basis. This is where she liked to shop in Boulder. And she wanted to understand how Whole Foods worked. And it was the idea that the values of Whole Foods were shared values for her that made it interesting for her to dig in and start to become an investor. Well, I think, did she read uh, Mackey's Conscious Capitalism as well? Yeah, we even talk about it in the book. I mean, John Mackey, of course, is is the uh, the shining light, you know, the lighthouse of of the idea that um, CEOs have an obligation to more than just shareholder returns. That it isn't just about, you know, CEOs love the idea that they just go make money for the shareholders because that's really simple. And many of them are hired gun mercenaries who are only going to be there five or six years and they're out to make a killing. They've been working their whole life to get to the top. Now they got to the top and they're making their 15, 20 million a year 
And really, it's sort of damn the torpedoes and screw everybody else. It's my time now. And, and what, what she started to uh, understand from John is that there are stakeholders out there. There are employees whose lives matter or should matter deeply to the CEO. There is the community that the, that the company is influencing. There's the environment that they should try to be making better every year. I mean, we're not going to walk on water, but let's try to make things better. And the idea is that a CEO has the obligation to make things better across this range of stakeholders in a company. And this is John Mackey in Conscious Capitalism, the book he wrote, and it's genius. And it says that there's a moral quality to leadership, which our leaders are pretty much ignoring. I think um, they want to be moral people, obviously, but they also want to accomplish their personal goals. And so I love investing with leaders, you know, like a John Mackey, like a Howard Schultz, like a, like a Steve Jobs. These people led the way um, I think the infantry school teaches its young officers to lead. And that is your people come first, Jacko, right? Yeah, you're, the, you're in charge, but your people come first. You make sure they're fed, you make sure they sleep, you make sure they're equipped, you make sure they're they're able to do their job, you support them in every way. And when the bullets start flying, you go up the hill first. And this, of course, is (laughs) completely the opposite of the way many CEOs are functional. So it was Danielle's understanding from John Mackey about moral investing, values investing, if you will, Patrick, that I think uh, really triggered her interest in this whole thing. So Phil, this so some of the things you've been you've been hitting on. I want to expand on just a, just briefly. the the first The first thing is I, I look at you know what we as a society have been conditioned to to do. Like what what is good? What should we aspire to? Uh, you know what what would uh, you know an accomplishment or achievement be? And it's and it's really related to first you know the the school system uh, influencing us to be good individuals. And, and I think in a, in a way that it, it conflicts with how, how most business, I think, is, is, uh, is, is evolving these days, which is to group, group effort. And in that, in that group or team effort, you have uh, economies of scale, you have division of labor, you have efficiency uh, that you don't have as, a, as an individual. You're taught to do everything and be a master of it all. And I just don't think that that's very, you know, I don't, it's not realistic. And I think it hurts, you know, and it's still going on because I have kids that are, that are still in school. It's still going on where you're taught to fit into this specific box and it leads people down, you know, this road to get degrees and prestige and salary and benefits. And, and ultimately, I would say if very similar things happen uh, to, to people, to, you know, as it happened to your daughter, which is they find themselves in this conundrum where they don't know what to do. They, they're earning money. They're doing everything that they've been told, but yet they don't have that sense of fulfillment or satisfaction. And, and, and I think that goes against you know, the, the nature of, of, human, of human beings. But then you go and you backtrack and reverse engineer you know, where, where our society has been created from an educational standpoint. And, and it's based on a very, very old system that was meant to train factory workers and military uh, based on the Prussian system. And, you know, and I think it's, it's still going on. It's perpetuating through business, but I've, I've seen some, I've seen some changes and I want to get your insight here because, you know, Whole Foods is not an anomaly. Um, I, you look at what's going on with GE right now. GE was a monstrosity. Now it's like, you know, it's not what GE used to be. 
And a lot of people are suffering from that, especially those that, you know, put all of the, you know, all of their stock into their, you know, into their pensions, into their 401k. It, they're, they're not very comfortable right now. But it's one of those things where, you know, when, when cor- as corporations, you know, as they start to have, you know, I would say um, a culture that is starting to get more putrid uh, than, than uh, healthy and successful, then that's where, you know, the pain gets so great where they have to, they have to do something. And right now there's a very transient, especially with millennials, there's a very transient nature of jumping from one to the next. And I, and I think it's because the fulfillment that they thought they were going to get, they're just not going, they're not going to put up with that. They're going to go seek it, seek it out. So I'd love to hear your and your daughter's thoughts in regards to, in regards to that and the you know, transient nature of workers that are seeking to you know, find gainful employment, meaningful employment. Well, I think meaningful employment is uh, right next to meaningful life, right? I mean, it's what we, we spend a lot of our, our, our day in our jobs. And I've got to, I mean, I, we're going to swim into deep water here, man, because this, there's a lot here um, that you were talking about. Um, and just to pick a spot to dive in, it, when you think about the, this, as you say, sort of the, um, the monstrosities that sort of get created by these huge corporations, which which turn uh, and which are using our school system as a sort of industrialized machine production system, and you go fit your cog into that machine, and the world has evolved, our consciousness has evolved far past that now, and a lot of these old companies are are still trying to do that, and you're just watching GE fall apart, right? GE had a culture back in the '90s where they would fire the bottom ten percent of their employees. I mean, I mean, good God. Talk about a backstabbing environment, right? So, you know, if you know, I'm not going to even get into it. What I'm going to say is this, that I love um, that people live a meaningful life. And a meaningful life means much more than, you know, just what you're doing at work all day. But it certainly involves what, do, what you do at work all day long. Absolutely. And for a long time, people grouped together in tribes, right? And we shared a meaningful life. And in a lot of ways, small towns are kind of tribal in that sense where there's a sharing of meaningful life. So you have a person who has a little store and he, he's there to provide farmers with some equipment and some seed. And then because he's there and, and, and making a little money, he's got some money to spend and their grocery store comes together and you build this little town, right? And you got this town and pretty soon you've got a lawyer and pretty soon you have a doctor and all these people are kind of dependent on each other, right? There's an interdependency that has a certain richness to life that's mm-hmm. there. And then along comes a Walmart <laughs> and it camps itself down. And these people exchange a life where they sh- they're in, in a meaningful relationship with their neighbors. They provide something important to their neighbors. And that changes to where now they're a greeter at Walmart. And they've done this in favor of having the price of the hammer be quite a lot lower than it was at their neighbor's uh, hardware store. And in essence, we sort of sold our friends down the river a little bit in that process. And then to, for Walmart to continue to deliver on its promises to its shareholders, to its employees and so on, to raise wages, it has to get more customers. And so what does it do to get more customers? Well, it puts pressure on the price of the people who supply pork. So it goes to Smithfield Foods and it says, you know, you guys need to supply pork cheaper or we're going to go to China and get cheap pork. And Smithfield says, well, okay, we're going to do our level best. 
and they get their heads together, the executives, and they say, you know what? We can't have these hogs walking around on the ground anymore because it's cheaper to put them in a cage. And we're just going to put a 250-pound hog in a cage, and we're going to leave her there her whole life. We're going to inject her with vaccines and, and antibiotics so she'll stay alive in this, in this system where she might go insane, of course, but it's just a hog, a cog in the machine in the size of a coach seat, 250-pound hog, and we're going to keep her there, and then we're going to slaughter her, and the meat goes to Walmart. And wow, look at this. We can meet their demands for lower-priced pork. And so now we've dehumanized the consciousness that's the hog. And now we're hiring people, by the way, to come in and, and shock the hog with electrodes to make them do the things. And those people are dehumanized by the environment they're living in. And now Nebraska passes a law that says you can't put a camera in that facility <clears throat> undercover without committing a, a felony because they don't want it revealed, right, that what's going on. So now I find out that Smithfield is going through this horror show of animal cruelty and human cruelty and, and, uh, and disobeying every sort of moral injunction and doing that so that they can meet Walmart's price because they're under pressure from Walmart. And you start to see the impact of removing consciousness from the equation mm -hmm. where it's all about money. It's all about price. And I think that that's what's driving a lot of millennials right now. Well, there's this, it's interesting. This is, a, this is an interesting topic because, you know, why is it that like my daughters love animals? Like my wife took them to this, this like puppy barn that's 45 miles away on Saturday. And they were, I have like a thousand videos of like puppies. Like we have this kind of fascinate, you know, fascination with animals, but yet you also have people become irate when there's harm done to an animal. And so I've always asked myself that question I, I, and of why, why that is. And I, you know, the, the conclusion I've come to, not to say that this is, this is the conclusion, it's just my perspective, is that there's this kind of moral framework that we all have. There's a value system that we all have. We can't, you know, and, and this is not like religion. It's just like a, it's, it's the right thing. I think most people understand the right thing and the wrong thing, right, with maybe a little bit of variance. And, and I look at, you know, corporations and specifically capitalism, and capitalism has its role. There needs to be incentives. It drives efficiency, supply and demand. You know, it provides an environment where there's, there could be evolution, and, and I'm not saying that, that that's wrong, but at the same time, when there's values that are compromised, okay, that's when it crosses the line. I think that you're right. Employee, employees want to be part of, of capitalism, but they want to be a part of you know, more responsible capitalism that have some sort of uh, value-based system, uh, a culture that is you know, fair and just based on those principles. And even though they're not articulating it like that, I, I feel, because I have, we have, about maybe 30 uh, millennials that, that, uh, that, that work here. And I've had a lot of experience with them over the years. And that's what I see as a lot of the drive is they're not articulating that I want a system that's based on this value and this value and this, value, but it's more of, they want something that is doing good, that is being profitable, that's, that's making money, right? That they're successful, but it is not done by compromising uh, that that moral or ethical framework. Have you, have yeah. you seen, like, what are you, what's your observation been? Is yeah, my observation is that that is exactly where my kids have gone. And I think they've gone in the right direction. I'm really proud of them. And I'm proud of their whole generation for bringing 
this uh, into reality. And they're, they're, they're walking their talk pretty good out there. Yeah. What's really ironic, uh, for example, the, the movement, the 99%, one, the 1% movement, right, that was, that was demonstrated in New York a few years ago. Mm-hmm. The irony here is that these, the people were, com- were objecting to the one percenters uh, manipulation of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and the irony here, of course, is that the, particularly on Wall Street, the one percenters on Wall Street would not even be there. They wouldn't even go to work in the morning if it wasn't for the fact that they had the money from the 99%. Mm-hmm. It's our money that these bastards are using <laughs> to screw up the world in order to get rich and have a sailboat with a taller mast than the other guy. And it's our money. And one of the reasons I really love doing this book, Invested, is because it's pretty clear that if we take back our money, if we have the education to properly invest our money without using Wall Street financial guys to do it, who are running the indexes and they're running the ETFs, screw that. We can learn to do this on our, our own with, and not pay fees and get at least as good and probably substantially better results with lower risk is my view. And we do that and we get to add the values to it. We get to bring our morals to our money. And one of the most wonderful things that I've learned from Warren Buffett is that Buffett and Munger are values investors. They're not just, you know, value investors. They, they walk their talk. So for example, somebody, every year, somebody asks Warren, why are you still investing in Coca-Cola? Oh my God, they, Coca-Cola is responsible for childhood diabetes and for uh, obesity and it's, ah, this pile of stuff. And everybody in the audience is like, yeah, the millennials, right? Hey, what's going on? And Buffett says, hey, I like Coke. Coke <laughs> makes me happy, right? So having a Coke is a value of his. He likes it. He likes what it does. He says, you don't have to get obese. You just watch your calories. And he, he goes, look, I, Coke makes me happy. I drink six or seven of them a day. I go to Whole Foods. I don't see anybody smiling at Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> Did he really say that? <laughs> he really said that. Making a joke, of course, that it's not <laughs> your turnips. But it is, you know, obviously a lot of people love Whole Foods. So the point being that Buffett puts his money where his values are. He doesn't invest in tobacco. He doesn't invest in casinos. He doesn't invest in things he just doesn't think are good. But his value systems are his. And the point of learning to invest on your own is to make your money go where your values are, mm-hmm. not where Warren's are, right? Or not where your fund manager's values are. So that's a very powerful thing. Now, I, w- I wanted to jump, unless you want to talk about that. No, from- I'll, I'll, make, I'll wrap up one, one, okay. uh, one point because I, I, I agree uh, with you. I think people taking control of their money is is you know, that can make some huge shifts because I won't go into the way in which markets are created, influenced, unethically influenced by a lot of the money that is floating around on, on Wall Street. Uh, and it was never that. It was, it, the, I interviewed Ted Benna, um, I think it was a little over a year ago. He was the first financial advisor that used the 401k section of the, the tax code. And he used it more for executives to defer as opposed to uh, have to pay tax on end of your bonuses. And, you know, he, 
he kind of pioneered that, but it's one of like his biggest regrets, right? Because right. What exactly. happened, you already had a really good retirement set up and this was to help shelter more income, right? Exactly. And right. it got and, twisted. And so I think that's, you know, it's part of it where people have, you know, been taught again, same thing with, you know, the, the school system and what we should do as far as employment is concerned. <clears throat> it basically teaches people that that's not your specialty. That's, you know, not what you should control. This is the direction you should go. And now we have the monstrosity that we have today. But I would make one other, one other point. I think that's, that's uh, one of the legs of the stool. I think another leg of the stool, which is wrapping up the point we were making in the beginning, is finding meaningful, meaningful employment uh, or meaningful things to do to create value for others. And I, I believe that that's, that's kind of, you know, inter, in, intertwined with our, our purpose and meaning uh, of, of life is to don't, not stop doing that. And I think the idea of retirement uh, more relates to stopping what you hate doing, right? Because I think if people love what they were doing, they wouldn't necessarily uh, retire. They'd be retired right now. They'd be free right now. And they'd be able to, you know, have meaningful experiences with their kids. They'd be able to go on vacation and travel, right? But also have employment that's meaningful and that provides value to others. And I think a lot more money is going to be made there, but there's a lot more fulfillment and happiness. And I think that in this day and age, more so than any age in the past, you have opportunities, whether it's, you know, uh, contract work or working remotely, right? Or, you know, just the, I don't know, the, the, uh, the essence of fine, you know, going from one job to another to another where you, you know, within 10 years, maybe have five jobs and that's not seen as erratic by, by employers anymore. So I think it's, it's good to find something that has a, a, a purpose, employment that has a purpose, because I think that's going to be part of, you know, uh, part of that whole freedom equation. Because far too often I've seen, you know, this is going back over 10 years, people have tried to have their money set them free, right? And, and oftentimes there are these like X factors, anomalies that throws everything out of whack. And if they don't have the other side of the equation, which is being able to have, you know, you know making contributions and earning, earning money based on those contributions, okay, then sometimes this can throw an entire life out of whack, which has a person have to go back to the job they hated, you know, 20 years ago. So well, I want to wrap is, that up before we move on. My friend, this is exactly where I wanted to jump to. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. Exactly where I wanted to go because money does not provide freedom, right? It can be actually a gigantic ball and chain. I mean, you, you can't imagine if you don't have money, how uh, terribly fearful are people who do have it are of losing it and how they how your life can change dramatically um, because now you have this thing you have to protect. Mm -hmm. right? But I think that's probably most people would love to have. So I'm not going to dwell on that. What I want to dwell on is what you just said about meaningful work, a meaningful life, meaningful things that you do. And one of the things that I taught my kids from square one was the concept of Dharma as a, as a way of thinking about, this meaningful life, right? What a meaningful life is. And this, this whole idea of Dharma, uh, Dharma meaning that you're doing the things in your life you're supposed to be doing, the things you were born to do, assuming there is such a thing. I think there let's is. Just, let's just uh, imagine that there is, that you're born with a purpose and that as you grow, you keep changing that purpose. That, in other words, as you, as a child, your purpose is one thing, but as an adult, another thing. And maybe soon you'll have achieved a certain level of skill sets and mastery where the new purpose can evolve. Mm -hmm. And so that's a constant throughout your life is this constant change. And when I was working as a river guide, Patrick, I worked um, 
from about we'd start in March, late March and, and go to October. And then I would have my $4,000 that I saved from working down there. And I would go travel or go just go take classes or whatever. And um, I spent time in India multiple times and um, I learned to invest and I learned to do all this different kind of stuff in India. And I love the Indian culture and I, I love the Indian people. And what I, one of the things I love most about it is that they've been around a long, long time. And what they, have in their culture is this idea that you're here for a purpose and let's just call it dharma and that there are ways of getting onto your dharma that are better than other ways right and i kind of took what i learned back to the river where i was working in the grand canyon and i started to recognize that as i was floating down the river i was living a metaphor for dharma for living a good life right for dharma so i've got my boat on this river that's all chocolate brown because it it, it's not clear a lot of the times and you can't see the current very well. You have to feel it. Hmm. And if you don't feel it driving a great big boat like this, right? Rowing a big boat with people and all their gear for two weeks, it's very easy to get out of the current enough to where you really have to work hard and struggle to get back to where you're supposed to be. And if you don't even recognize that moment when you better start rowing, you're going to find yourself inevitably either in a cata catastrophic crash where you don't want to be or stuck in an eddy where you're not going downstream at all. Mm -hmm. Going around in a circle. You see the metaphor, right? Oh, of course. Pretty clear. And so I learned that in the river, the, the art of rowing a boat down the Grand Canyon is the art of taking the strokes when you need to. And the woman that taught me this is actually a woman I trained down there who's still a great friend of mine named Louise Rist, who was one of the first women guides down in the Grand Canyon, 1972 here, 1973. And Louise looks like a fashion model. She's like five, except she's a little small for a fashion model. She's like five, six, 115 soaking wet, right? And she's rowing this boat. And up to Louise joining us, all of the guys who rode the boat are guys like me. I'm 6'2", 195. The other, other my friends, you know, rode crew for Orange County. These are like, everybody's burly because it's this big macho job and you got to be a big macho muscular guy to do this job. And here comes Louise and the company was very affirmative action. So they got a way for her to come in and she showed us all we were full of crap. <clears throat> that what you needed to do was to feel that current. And she was so good at it because she could not row her way out of trouble. It, it, so she had to avoid it in the first place. <laughs> right. She would have to catch it earlier. Mm -hmm. And so she got better than any of us at reading the direction of that river. And so if you're thinking about Dharma, it's the direction of your river in, in your life. So everything's great when you're just going straight, but your life won't go straight. It's going to curve. It's going Always. to change. Always. That, I think that's a perp yeah, that's the whole duality idea where you have, you know, and, and that's another thing is, is people place meaning on bad things. And I don't, I think pain, I think failure, those aren't bad things. Uh, it, again, it goes back to kind of how we've been conditioned, right? Where if we get a D, it means we failed and we're a bad person, right? Whereas it's something that we didn't do correctly, but it doesn't mean that we can't do it correctly. So I would, I would look at, you know, as far as navigating, navigating waters, you know, is paying attention to those signals because that metaphor was perfect. If you get far down, it, it becomes more painful to get back on track. If you get further down, even more painful. And eventually you can go through a catastrophic, you know, a, a, a waterfall or your boat will capsize 
And, and oftentimes, you know, frankly, that's what I've seen as the moments that, that change the change people, right, is those catastrophic things. But it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. Those are all kind of part of it. That's the cycle of, of learning and the cycle of education in, in, in more respects than one, not just, uh, not just financially. And, but I, I would say, you know, as, as far as those that are, that are listening, you know, the purpose of, you know, the purpose I think of this conversation is so that uh, people can relate to similar things and similar principles. Because Phil, you're in a different place. I'm in a different place. Your daughter is in a different place. But at the same time, we're all kind of doing the same thing. And we're all being, I think we're all being kind of like directed by the same values and the same principles. And so, you know, you saying these things and what I've been, you know, trying to get across by interviewing others that feel the same way is to help individuals really discover ways in which they can uh, have more pleasure, have more achievement, uh, have more happiness associated with life from a financial perspective, uh, but also from a, a, an employment perspective. Because in the end, that's, you know, we can go choose to, you know, live in the middle of nowhere on a, and learn to farm and, and we could do that, but we live in a modern, you know, for those that choose to live in a modern society, the resources that are available today for a person to really discover something that they love to do, but also ways in which they can take back control of their finances. It's easier to do now than ever. The education is all there. It's just a matter of uh, prioritizing and hopefully, you know, the, the pain is great enough where that, uh, that will, that will take place so that that course correction can start. Yeah. Because I mean, you're getting this book, uh, you guys who are listening to this, we got this book out there because of that pain. Exactly what Patrick's talking about right now, exactly what you're talking about, man, is what my daughter went through um, in this career. I mean, she has, she has a dream career as far as a parent's concerned, right? where I'm so happy. I encouraged her and a whole thing, and she ends up in this dream career. And, it's, and she writes about this in the book in great detail that she started to get really, really sick from the stress of this job. So what's, what is someone's dream career? because they're in their dharma can be someone else's nightmare yep. who is out of their dharma and that kind of illness <clears throat> and and that kind of stress and pain is i think nature's way of telling you you've got to make a change it's it's like you've got your hand in the fire in the stove and and if you really persevere you can keep it in there if you're really disciplined if you really fight through the pain but it's just nature's signal for you to take your damn hand out of the fire. Come on, man. Get it out of the fire. So Danielle finally realized that she needed to get her hand out of the fire. And part of what drove her to come to talk to me about investing was she was going to walk away from a really, really high-paying job. How was she going to achieve the freedom in her life to pursue what she wanted to do in her life, whatever that was? And investing became part of that. But I'm telling you, it was the pain that drove her to the decision to change her life radically. And I think, frankly, if I've been successful in my life, it is, it is my willingness to make that change. And I've been very fortunate to make it before I got hammered, right? Before nature said, well, you're just not hearing me here. And, and those changes came. I mean, I stopped being a soldier. Um, and I was a very good soldier. I was in Army Special Forces, the Green Berets. I was a really good soldier. I was good at it. And it just, I came to an end of it. And I, and I stopped. And then I became a river guide because it was a door I could walk through, not because, oh, it's been my dream to be a river guide. I never even heard of it. My mom was just 
filling envelopes for this river touring company. Mm-hmm. And she said, you really need to go get a job. And so I, I went and tried out for it because it was the only door that would open up. I, I was funny. I was, I, was, I was invited to come up to speak to a group of the special operation forces guys up in uh, Fort Bragg not too long ago. And I didn't know what I was going to talk to them about. And I finally decided, look, these are some of the real, real amazing warriors that we have. And they're, they're being overused and a lot of them are going to leave the military. And um, they're going to come into civilian life. So I thought it might be fun to tell them a little bit about my exit from that world into civilian life and the stuff I went through. And, I, and I'll tell you, it's, you, you have to just go to the door that's open because it's very hard for you to open doors that nature doesn't want you to open, right? Mm-hmm. Really difficult. So I came, came back from Vietnam and, and I, I decided, well, I'd get a job blowing stuff up because I'm good at blowing things up. And um, so I looked in the yellow pages under blow crap up. Right. And, <laughs> and I called a few companies and I said, I'm just back and I know how to blow stuff up. And they were like, click, <laughs> you know, just not the least bit interested in talking to me. And so the only door that opened up was this river guide door. So I went through it and that led me, this path few people traveled led me into the life I'm in now, which here I am. I'm like a best-selling author. I've made a lot of money as an investor surely the right way to go about that is to become a river guide in the Grand Canyon, right? That's an obvious choice of things you do. So what I, my point is, is that you don't know where Dharma is going to take you. You just don't know what you're put on this earth to do. What you know is what's driving you away from what you're doing. That's the pain. And that can be very powerful. And then where should you go? You should go through the door that's open. Probably there's one door open. So, you know, cowboy up and walk through that damn door. You may not want to even do it, right? My daughter did not want to do a podcast with me, but it was the door that was open for her to figure some stuff out. And it's amazing when you walk through that door. Robert Frost poem that I know you know, which is The Path Less Traveled, basically says, I came to a path in the woods that forked essentially, and I chose the path less traveled by, and that made all the difference. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm just going to tell you guys, don't be afraid of stepping through an uncomfortable place. Mm-hmm. It's going to make a difference, and it's going to take you to the next place. That's kind of my advice for finding Dharma. Well, I'm going to add, I'm going to, add to that, and then, then we could probably wrap, wrap up. We could probably I, – I, have, I haven't even asked, like, any of my questions. So, actually, I asked the first question. Tell us, tell us about your story. <laughs> like and more. off we have gone. I'm, um, I'm infamous or famous for doing that. Um, okay, so what I was going to say, so a couple, couple weeks ago, I do this, like, investment, this investment uh, summit every year. Uh, it's on a cruise ship. And uh, Robert Kiyosaki, I'm not sure how much interaction you've had with him over the years. Uh, I'm uh, on stage but, with Robert actually on um, May 1st and May 3rd. Oh, cool. Come okay. Where are, you guys speak, where are you guys speaking at? Calgary and Toronto in okay. the convention center, both places. Cool. Yeah. So he, so he does this, you know, and it's a, it's a smaller group. There was, I mean, this was the biggest one they've ever had, which was just under 300 people, but usually it's about 100, 150 and, and we, we get to do these, uh, these article studies with him or book studies with him. And previous years, you know, we, we would study uh, like an article about gold, article about uh, uh, oil and its influence on, on the world. But this last one was fascinating. And I think a lot of what I've learned from him over the years is this, this idea of approaching, uh, approaching something without a bias and so he had us study this article about a holosync, which is a type of meditation of all things. And holosync is this like idea of, of 
of balancing the two hemispheres of the of the brain. And it, the idea behind it, a lot of what the the author Bill Harris is trying to get across is is that all situations are they're not good, they're not bad. They are they're just the way that they they are. We're the ones that place meaning on that. And that meaning comes from you know experience, and it comes from uh, you know our wins and losses uh, and so forth, uh, perspectives of others and how they've influenced us. But then when we approach it, we take that lens, and that's how we look at whatever the situation is. Because even with the Robert Frost, as you were saying that, you know, because this has helped me kind of analyze everything. The fork in the road, you know, he took the one less traveled. That's great, but if the person took the road traveled, he may have come across another road that was less traveled, <laughs> right? They would have made the decision then, right? So it's one of those, well it doesn't mean that you missed your opportunity. Like opportunities right. are all over the place. It's just, it comes down to removing your lens and trying to look at things as objectively as, as possible. And it, it really comes down to education. It comes down to self-discovery, personal development. And I think that is ultimately what's going to, you know, empower somebody, empower the listeners to not, not only find, you know, what their calling or genius is that they can contribute to the world, uh, but it's also going to allow them to take back control of the financial side of things and make sure that those two, I would say, functions are, are in harmony with one another. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree completely. I think that learning to invest properly the way Buffett and Munger have taught it for, you know, 60 years, the way Graham taught it before that is, takes very little time. It's, it's very simple. Um, it's not easy because it requires a certain significant amount of self-discovery. It requires a significant amount of personal discipline, um, and that comes from personal development. It requires a significant amount of reading and having an open mind. It requires you watching out for confirmation bias and getting burned by your own commitments. Mm -hmm. All of these things are about what's going on between your ears, Mm-hmm. Um, not about the actual practice. The practice is very straightforward. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm 100% with you, man. I, I, I don't teach enough about that, but I'm, it's amazing to hear Robert has, has gone there. And I, I, I really appreciate him very much. And I appreciate you bringing this up because ultimately your listeners and, and all of your fans are about becoming free and becoming liberated in, in this, in this world we're working in. And, and ultimately, that's a joy. That's a that's a joy and a voyage of self discovery all the way. And uh, hopefully, you know, you can make a little money so you're freed up from the restrictions on the path you're on, so you can go after the things you're here to do. Well, Phil, this has been an amazing conversation. I wish I wish we had uh, more time, but uh, but you're awesome. We'll we'll push uh, a lot of ways in which people can uh, connect with you, as well as links to your your new uh, new book. Uh, I wish you the best of luck with your your podcast uh, with you and your daughter. I'm going to go listen to it, uh, listen to those because I I did a I did an interview with my daughter about a year ago. She was only 11 and uh, she was really freaked out, but she did a pretty good job. I think she needs a few more years though to to get to that stature. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you very much. You've got a great great podcast, and I've enjoyed listening to it. So keep it up, man. Okay, thanks, Bill. Yeah. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.